0: I received this in the mail from a friend uh, a while back, a few weeks ago. It's called, Technology Has Us So Plugged Into Data We Have Turned Off. A new plague of inattention is spreading. It's called Surfer's Voice, a habit of half-heartedly talking to someone on the telephone while simultaneously surfing the web, reading emails, or trading instant messages. On one end of the phone is an annoyed colleague or family member discussing an important topic. On the other end, a party puts on a meager soundtrack of knowing participation. Uh okay, um, uh right. Uh okay. It is punctuated with surreptitious tapping of a keyboard. The brainy people who study these things call this phenomena absent presence. Not bad, you know. For years, researchers have discussed how cell phones have trampled over the once communal public space of sidewalks and restaurants. The idea is that we may be physically on a street corner, but our distracted minds are not. We'll do little bits of everything and none well. Then it goes on, then it quotes a professor at the University of Washington, Seattle. This professor thinks our information-drenched culture is ripe for a movement akin to the ecology awakenings of the 1960s that will explore bringing information, silence, and sanctuary harmoniously into daily life. Sound familiar? So we're on the cutting edge of a new political movement (laughs) that's only been going on for thousands of years. Uh, Before we're too hard on technology, uh, the teachings that we've been sharing with you are at least 2,600 years old. Uh, So apparently this uh, inattention it's not something new. It's been going on for quite a while. It's just one of the latest installments is another way to do it, which is through gadgets, apparatus, machines, equipment, and so forth. Uh, but you don't need that. It can just, you could just be in a village uh, thousands of years ago, and your mind can do all the work without any externals, all the work of not being there, absent presence. Uh, So I think it's just uh, another theme. It's uh, reinforcing the same theme that we've been uh, developing throughout the week. Just uh, another remark about reflections on the uh, groups. It seems like one common uh, 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 refrain that comes out of, the groups, beginners and people who've been practicing for a while, is a dissatisfaction with continuity. That is, we've heard the word continuity, and so uh, we now set up a new ideal. It's a new way to, su- to suffer that we've given you here. <laughs> uh, so the new people seem to be more concerned about, I don't know, I only get about three or four breaths, and then I'm off and running. Uh, I don't know. And so there's suffering there. and. The people who've been around the block for a while, theirs is more, includes daily life, not so much about the breath, and that somehow they missed a few breaths during the day, uh, more than a few. Uh, And they're suffering because of this new ideal to grasp after. Let me give you an example that uh, came to mind, uh, which helped me a few years ago as to perhaps an attitude that might be helpful for you. Uh, watching a friend's child at the, the stage where the child was just beginning to learn how to walk at that stage. So uh, my friend called me in and very excitedly, let's watch this. You know. And this little boy you know, would start to walk and then he'd fall down. And then he'd get up and fall down and get up and fall down. Another step, fall down get up two steps, fall down, get up, And all the while with this incredible glee and happy expression on his face, went on. And so it was a joy to watch. He wasn't, what he wasn't doing was like, uh, am I learning how to walk as fast as the next kid? You know, uh, you know, let's see how many times have I fallen down already? Uh, this is no fun. And look, they're watching, they're looking at me. They want me to succeed and just have continuous walking without a break. I don't think so. Because the child wasn't as smart as us yet. Uh, And Dharma is intended to make us dumber, to dumb us down in some ways. At any rate, do you get it or is it too deep? Good. Good. So, you know these ideals—they're really just suffering. It's uh, the, the the notion of uh, continuity is helpful. It's kind of a, a, a pointing in a direction, like the North Star. Maybe you never quite get there, but it gives you direction. But don't turn it into another torture chamber, please. Um, we left off. Uh, we've been working with uh, the Satipatthana Sutra. Are the four foundations of mindfulness, and including a, a streamlined version of it, uh, which is the Anapanasati Sutra, which is mindfulness with breathing or full awareness of breathing, it's, it's translated as sometimes, and which is just the Satipatthana Sutra, uh, uh, the essence of it, using the breath to help you develop these four foundations of mindfulness the body, feelings the mind itself, and then the lawfulness underlying uh, the body, feelings, and mind. And the Satipatthana Sutra, which is the, the most well-known and cherished meditation sutra of the Buddha, which I think eventually, if you stay with this, it'd be good for you to read it, um, it's like a very large department store. Uh, the, the breath, there's, it's got all kinds of, of uh, very, very helpful meditations, particularly helping us to um, come to terms with the nature of the body, our body, uh, t- having to do with the contemplation of death, aging, uh, the parts of the body, seeing the body as uh, a collection of elements. Uh, very, very helpful. In the Anapanasati Sutra, uh, it doesn't go into that, but the flow is very, very It's identical. It's an attempt to, and it's very clear, at least in the Anapanasati Sutra, breath awareness. Um, Since I use that a lot in my own practice and to teach with, um, uh, uh, that's been a frame frame of reference, but you you need to know that uh, this is true whether you use the breath uh, in in an ongoing way or not. So we were on the body and uh, what you 've been doing is in int- in uh, attending to the to the breathing for uh for quite a few days now at first exclusively uh also you 've been encouraged to have a sense of the body uh we've been learning about our body from the inside uh not from an anatomy or physiology book but just uh the experience of the body from the inside each one of us. Uh, the Buddha used the term "The body in the body it 's one translation, meaning bodily experience without any uh, concepts about it, free of concepts or or uh, the body in and of itself, just um, the raw bodily sensations that make up bodily bodily life um, <clears throat> uh, Just that uh, can be very, very helpful. And some of it in very practical ways. Uh, For example, you can learn to listen to your body, to invite it to tell you how it's doing. Uh, For the late night sitting, as you learn how to listen to the body, uh, and of course it it always includes the mind, uh, which is the listener, uh, you find out it it tells you things. In my own case, uh, when I wake up in the morning, most mornings, I'll try to, I'll pause, it's not very long, I'll invite the body to just, you know, tell me how it is as I lie there in, in in bed, often accompanied with the breathing. And let's say I like to do yoga to begin the day, if I have the time. Uh, but even prior to yoga, sometimes it's, let's say I have time, there's no particular place to to be, a scheduled place to be, uh, listen to the body, does it need more sleep? Is it still tired? Or can it get up? And typically, we look at the, the clock, and that tells us. Uh, but I think as you get to know the body, you'll see that some evenings you may need more sleep, some evenings less sleep. And uh, little by little, you learn to trust that. Uh, some days, I don't do yoga, because the body says, nope, no yoga today. You know, we, it's, we, we, we're too tired. We whatever the reason, I listen to it. But it took me a while. And so, there are many benefits like that that come from mindfulness of the body. Uh, There's really quite a bit we can go into. Um, We were already moving into uh, what what is called the second foundation. So the first is the body in and of itself, which is Vedana or feelings, sometimes called sensations. Um, And we got into that, if you recall, uh, as you attend to the breathing exclusively, is this getting across somehow? Can you hear it in the back? Uh-huh. Um, if you recall, what we were talking about, there's a certain uh, uh, peace and happiness, uh, a rapture, a joy that can come out of a concentrated mind. And so we're already in to the second foundation of mindfulness. Uh, in the first... We're coming to term. We're learning how to be with the breathing, for the body to settle down, to to be able to be comfortable and stable, providing us with a very strong physical foundation from which to experience the rest of our life experience. And uh, as that develops, uh, you experience uh, uh, some peace, some joy, and so forth. And so we're in feelings. Now, Vedana or feelings... Uh, has to do with the uh, the, the sense doors we have all these sense doors, and they all converge on the mind that is a smell comes in an aroma comes in um, and in making contact it has its, its experiences either pleasant unpleasant, or neutral neither okay and the same with all the sense doors let 's go back uh to, uh, to uh, to michael 's example last night from the retreat, which was awakened in me again because one participant in the group actually came back i wasn 't sure if anyone ever came back, despite how valuable it was for us uh, at any rate, but this uh, yogi uh, also mentioned well, I guess we didn't have we weren 't able to spend much time with the breathing, but it turned out to be really valuable anyway, which is what Michael told you last night it was. Let's reenact it. The sound comes in, whatever that is, the sound of the drill, uh or whatever the equipment is, things being moved, dropped and so forth. It's just sound, pure sound. And then it it if the ears working, uh it can, the mind it has contact and then it, the, everything converges on the mind. All the sense doors, organs converge on the mind. And that sound then can very easily be turned into noise, which is what we all did at first, in part because the mind didn't expect it. We came up here, silent retreat, meditation center, Barry, Massachusetts, rural, bucolic, rustic, and you know, suddenly gone. And so the mind took that foundation. So you can see how already we're beyond even feelings uh, because what the feeling was, let's say, unpleasant. And when the, when, a, when the sensation or the feeling that comes in is unpleasant, there's a tendency of the mind to not want it, to reject it, to get away from it, to get annoyed, angry, aversive. Okay, And if we don't, if we're not clear and see it there, it doesn't stop there because then the mind itself enters in and starts making up a story about it because then... Uh, The main element in the story is that this noise, which it has now become, the mind turns sound into noise, is happening to me on my retreat, which I came here looking forward to, wanting to get awakened and enlightened, uh, paying my hard-earned cash and all the rest of it, and then you have a torment. But let's stick with the, what did we do on the retreat? Um, We Uh, turned a bad situation into a good situation. And that's a central Dharma attitude, learning how to turn a bad situation into a good situation, Uh, no matter what it is. I'm not saying that's easy. So this one, that's what happened. Uh, We were able to, instead of fighting it, which of course would have gone where, would just have exhausted us, uh, led to more aggravation, uh, conflict, and who knows what. Uh, we let that be the practice. Before that, we were saying, if only this wasn't happening, I could really practice. Turning a bad situation into a good situation is, no, uh, this is your practice. Now, maybe you can already see in the second mode of instructions, where we've opened it up, uh, I hope some of you, you're doing some of this, First, exclusive attention to the breathing, the mind becomes more calm, more able to contemplate the remaining experience—not just breathing, but what makes up a human being, our bodily life, uh, psyche, consciousness, environment, and so forth. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So we're we're uh, we're doing that, and. In doing that, we're learning how to look at the very same phenomena, uh, only instead of setting up resistance and fighting with it and yearning for it not to be there and then regretting that it is and all of that, we simply uh, say, okay, this is my practice. You know, the second mode of instructions, if just you, you've heard this a few, I mean, more than a few times is now, we're just open to whatever's happening. Now, when you do that, it's a shorthand way of dealing with all four uh, <clears throat> foundations of mindfulness. Because you're sitting, you're aware. And life isn't compartmentalized like that. Body, feelings, mind, and then the lawfulness underlying it. Um, the sutra itself, the essence of it that is relevant for us is that uh, our practice enables us to uh, begin to be more at home with the body from inside, uh, to begin to become more familiar and at home with the different experiences that the, b- the bodies go through uh, in a new way relating to discomfort, etc., in a new way, uh, and also then we move on and we, if, if the mind comes in, the mind here means thinking. It also means moods, emotional life, whatever you, the full catastrophe, as well as the full beauty of what minds produce. And then the fourth one, the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the way we're using it, is uh, anything that arises that uh, you experience in consciousness, whether it's a bodily experience or a feeling, a, a, a sensation, or any mind state, all of it arises and passes away. It's impermanent. And that is a, a crucial insight. It's central in the Buddhist teaching. It's insight into the changing nature of all formations. As you see that, you also see they're empty. Empty doesn't mean it's not there. It's a way of seeing its insubstantiality, whereas prior to that, what we saw was it was quite substantial. It seemed to be, whatever it was. Fear, annoyance, and so forth. It, sometimes it also seemed like it's going to be forever. Some of the moods we get in, very painful memories, fear of certain things that await us. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's, uh, that it's lacking in solidity, it feels like a mountain, and it feels like that mountain's going to be there forever. And then somebody says, watch it, be mindful of it. It seems impossible, very, very difficult. And at first, of course, it is. That's why we're learning, how to, we're learning the art of pure observation. Okay, hey, now, not on that retreat, because if you recall, I've been trying to uh, accompany whatever we've been doing uh, with with a mode of practice that I think coincides with how the Buddha taught. That is, there'd be teachings and then we're encouraged through our meditation to test these teachings. Is it true? And so, did being schooled in these teachings, did it really help us deal with that situation of the drilling and the sound and uh, all of that, which was unexpected, did it help us, uh, give us the skills to, ter- to be able to turn that into something beneficial? Actually, something liberating for us, uh, which perhaps on our own, I would say definitely in my own case, on our own, we would not have been able to do. And so, uh, Michael and I know, for us it did, and at least for a few people that we've spoken to, I don't, there are others I don't know, it seemed at the time many people would have agreed with us, I don't know if any of them are here, uh, that this teaching put into practice made a huge difference in how the same situation suddenly became uh, Dharma because of complete attention to it in a somewhat different way. So and Roshi, a, a uh, 20th century Zen master, uh, what, what he was talking about was this pure observation and what he says is that when our uncontrived mind that means the mind that's that's what real awareness is there's nothing in it but seeing when our uncontrived mind taught, touches the rawness of our experience we turn our bad uh, we turn our bad karma into our wonderful dharma and i think that's what happened we all grew and learned from it From the other side, Michael and I, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Michael would agree with me. Um, Do you think we would have been able to teach that if we hadn't learned it from other teachers who gave it to us and taught us a new way to experience life? I don't think so. And so that's how this particular practice unfolds. The teachings are meant to be tested in the fire of life. Of your life, so that it becomes personal. Then it's your understanding, not borrowed. The Buddha said, or some teacher said, uh, you now, and it's a different feeling altogether. When you learn something for yourself, it brings not only joy, but some really fresh energy. Even it's a tiny little thing that you learn, and you learned it for yourself. Doesn't Think back, isn't it a wonderful feeling to learn something? Uh, for yourself, that you actually know this. So much of what we think we know is borrowed, unexamined and borrowed. Much of knowledge, maybe all of it, lots of it. We borrow it from other people who borrowed it from other people, or they wrote other things. And there's a place for that. A very important place. But it isn't life transforming, it's not liberating. Now What I'm getting at here is that the quest for knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge, which we're very, very good at, is helpful to a point, and that includes Dharma knowledge. These teachings have a definite and very important role. I I hope I've made that very clear. Without them, I wouldn't have known any of this, and probably Michael wouldn't have either, and then we wouldn't have known what to do. We would just uh, start screaming or let's all pack up and just get out of here. Be at each other's throats. I don't know what. Okay. So do you, you see that. And uh, each person learns that for themselves. or they don't. And what the Buddha is saying is, if these teachings turn out to not be beneficial, skillful, move on. You know, it's, it was asked originally in one, not originally, but in one famous uh, sutta, uh, in the context of a group of people who felt bombarded by all the different teachers in, in India. It s- sounds like a lot like Cambridge and maybe Berkeley and, you know, sort of billboards with endless smiling faces and, you know, from ev- you know, from everywhere in Asia and the United States and all with the, the oldest method, the quickest method and uh, who they descended from and... Uh, it all sounds so convincing and then we go and uh, this one and that one. And, uh, our minds are like the bulletin board, you know, just all one thing, some one smiling face pasted on top of another one because the students of one, there's no room on the bulletin board. So they put their teachers one on top of the one that was, the, you know, this just, maybe it's just Cambridge. So the Buddha, they said, are you another one now? You're coming through and saying yours is the only way. He said, no. The style is set right there. If something is beneficial, I mean, take the counsel of the wise, use it, is it reasonable? But finally, you have to be your own authority. Once again, another one. Uh, The two arrows teaching. So many of you who have been here, again, uh, many times, you've heard it, many times as well. And please... Uh, listen to what I'm saying and see if you can answer it, how you would answer it. The two arrows teaching, for for those of you who are, are new, uh, I'm going to paraphrase quite a bit. The Buddha is asked, what's the difference between the way a meditating yogi experiences physical pain and, let's say, someone who's not been instructed? And the Buddha says, uh, the way someone who's not been instructed experiences physical pain is as if there are two arrows hit. One is the body, and then the other one is what the mind does with it, turns it into torment. The yogi gets hit with one arrow. The body hurts, but the second arrow of the mind, the unexamined mind, that one we learn how to uh, sometimes prevent it in the first place or to neutralize it or to, uh, so that what we have is pain, but not torment. Now, we have given instructions like that. I know I, have, I know it's come up, and many of you already know the words um, during this retreat. If you're using that practice, you begin to develop the insight into the distinction between ache, 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 body, first arrow, and then what the mind makes up about it. Oh my god, uh, self-pity. Uh, most important, this is me, this is my knee that hurts, it's my back, poor me, and then we're, the mind is off and running, and then we have, we have a difficult time. Uh, the, the insight into the distinction between the mind and body uh, extracts the second arrow. Granted, the mind and body are so tightly interrelated, but the, you can also distinguish between them. Well, you don't, don't answer now, but to yourself, you can answer now. Have you ever used that teaching, and has it helped you? If not, please use it to find out because I have so many times i can't count in the dentist's office undergoing uh, colonoscopy uh it's useful all all over the place the co- well maybe i don't know this is this is wrong I hope this is not off. We're broad-minded, right? <laughs> uh, a friend of mine told me, who had a colonoscopy, you've got to watch it on on the set. It's just fascinating, you know. <laughs> so, um, it's, but you can't do it if you're if you're all sedated. So I asked for permission. Could I really just see it? And they said, Well, there'll be some discomfort, maybe some pain. I said, Yeah, you know, we don't don't put me out because I do want to watch. My own colon, you know, (laughs) okay. In other words, Larry appears on the Discovery Channel. Yeah. Larry's colon, okay. And was there discomfort? Of course. And being able to tell the difference between the discomfort and then some of the turns as as the camera moves, uh, what the mind made up made it really quite bearable. It wasn't all that bad. There was pain there. It wasn't. I, I don't don't advise you to do it necessarily, but so the endless applications to that. And so, please see that the teachings are not a new belief, but something that's uh, intended to be much more practical than that. The teachings are intended to really help us flower as human beings. And in order to flower, we have to take a look at what's preventing us from that. And I think we talk about that a fair amount. Um, let's get to the spirit underlying the second set of instructions, where now the instruction is to just sit and to be with whatever's there. Just be yourself. Just as you know, some of you are more are rather drawn to the breath, then the breath can accompany you like a good friend helping you. But if not, You can use the breath just to calm and concentrate the mind. And then just open it and just be with what's there. Watch it all arise and pass away. Different aspects of the body, different aspects of the mind, feelings, um, moods, likes, dislikes, uh, everything. And watch it arise and pass away, arise and pass away. Uh, If you see that enough times, that has a, a powerful effect in helping you really let it all go. Um, the simplest and to me one of the finest teachings I've received was from Ajahn Chah, uh, who was here for a letter retreat here in the very early days of IMS. I, I was so impressed with it that uh, when we started Cambridge Insight Meditation Center we made it a bookmark, and we still use it. And This is what it says. This is the, this is the attitude Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. There's a bookmark. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things, come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Um, Of course included in those strange and wonderful things are some really unwelcome visitors to the pool. All kinds of emotional uh, wounds from the past and so forth. Uh, In this practice we can heal the past, in, but only in the present. When else could you do it? The past is over. The wound uh, still uh, has a trace, and it's available to us when it comes up. If we're able to bring attention to it, and it's not sometimes people will say, um, yeah, I noted it. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 it sound that isn't it. Now, sometimes for something that's fleeting or not too charge, fine. But that isn't what uh, uh, transforms us and brings us to this stillness. And don't let stillness fool you. Uh, That's a very uh, profound statement. Uh, uh, In other words, the the voice of the Dharma is stillness, finally. The truth is stillness. Um, What visits us uh, is unknown. We never know what's going to happen. That's, as you know, there's no agenda. The attitude that's necessary is—we've already been getting at it. I'm just—it's not so much um, catching a glimpse of or noticing, as a sustained attention, an attention that is. It underlying it is a willingness uh, to open ourselves up, to expose ourselves in a naked way to our experience. Now, um, that means the mind, uh, we're learning how to uh, enable the mind to drop all of its pretensions, its defenses, its opinionatedness, its biases, and to just be words like innocent, naive, unfabricated, just just being there. Uh, now, is that easy? Of course not. But it isn't looking at some of these visitors to this still that is still far as pool, from a distance with a telescope or with binoculars. It isn't detachment. It's uh, an opening up to so that our capacity to receive our own experience, no matter what it is, just because it's there, because that's what our life is in that moment, that capacity widens and broadens and deepens and becomes clearer. And that goes along, of course, with practicing it and constantly refining our ability to see clearly. Each mindful step, each mindful breath, each mindful scrubbing of account, or whatever you do in your life, and will do. But it's not from a distance, it's face to face. It's coming face to face with ourselves. And of course, that includes uh, suffering and the rest, I think, uh, a, a lot of things, it's easy. We like when we're very happy and there's joy, which, as you know, comes in meditation, then I, we won't have to talk so much. Uh, where is the right place to practice? Uh, when, uh, let's say, there's uh, the, there are tears, tears from sorrow, uh, the mindfulness, the, the heart of that, the core of those tears of sorrow is also the heart of the world of release, whereas the liberation is in the sorrow. The the first noble truth is noble, not because uh, there is suffering in life. There's no nobility in that. Everyone's suffering, it doesn't particularly make you noble. It exhausts us, demoralizes us, gets us to do all kinds of horrible things to ourselves and others. The reason it's a noble truth is that it's a gate. And if we can go right into the the heart of those tears, of that sorrow, uh, the world of release is there. It's not somewhere else. It's not that it's outside of that. And so everything is here. Our worst enemy is our own heart. Our best friend is our own heart. We're trying to shift that around so that each one of us becomes our own best friend. Now, uh, as you watch it all arise and pass away, come and go, come and go, which is what Ajahn Chah is implying. Uh, Can you uh, develop that ability to just see that uh, none of this is the original mind, it's not your original nature. This may seem abstract, until you've at least gotten a glimpse of it. It's what uh, is translated sometimes, it's a, I don't like the term, it's kind of a little pompous, adventitious. It's not intrinsic to the nature of the mind. So you watch all these conditions as they come and go, come and go. And sometimes there's a strong condition that's painful. Can you open to it with affection, with compassion? not as an idea, just it's you taking care of you. It, at a certain point, it's natural. You don't need someone like me to tell you that. It's the best way you can take care of yourself. But in order to do that, the mind has to be equipped. Uh, attitudinal changes that are revolutionary have to take place because it seems counter practical, counter intuitive. When we grew up Uh, If we're not feeling well, our mommies are not saying, be with that, Larry. They're saying, you know, oh, have a hot hot chocolate and a a nice uh, cookie. You know, uh, let's go, you know, your dad will be home and we'll we'll play, you know. Uh, So I don't think we're brought up uh, to to do that. It's this self-knowing which is inseparable from self-deception. Finally, you can say that The uh, self-knowing and the liberation comes out of the self-deception. It's not someplace else. As we learn how to attend. And uh, as we watch, for example, whatever it is as it comes. Let's say it's unwanted. Some form of sorrow. Fear. Big one, of course. Loneliness. Some of you have mentioned that. Grief for the the loss of someone you love. Okay. it's not uh, to trivialize that quite the contrary you feel it fully but uh, you give yourself over to it with complete attention there's no separation and that's a, a vital aspect of practice the intimacy with what we at first we're not all that intimate and what do we separate what separates us from whatever it is that, that is visiting this this still forest pool thinking usually We have preconceptions about what everything is, labels, and names, and interpretations. And then it gives rise to stories, and we get lost in it, fantasies, and all the rest of it. What we're learning here is how to be very, very simple. Again, the same teacher, Ajahn Chah, gave this advice over and over again. Uh, It's one of the most helpful things I've gotten from anyone. Very often, whatever questions he was asked, he would say, pause. Keep it simple, stick to the present moment. Keep it simple, stick to it. I don't know how I can tell you how um, that simple idea has made such a difference in my life. That isn't where we begin. We're not so interested in the present moment. Quite the contrary. We're interested in an imagined future, a past that's over, and even the present. We kind of uh, embroider with notions about what it is and, making it worse than it is or better than what it is. So, the, and the simplicity is inner. For example, uh, the the example of all the new technologies and ways in which people are uh, absent, uh, whatever, that, I forgot the phrase, absent presence or something like that. People are doing three or four things, multitasking. Isn't that the jargon now? Frenetic multitasking I would, sometimes what I see. And that may be part of your life. Maybe you have no choice. Maybe you're working on Wall Street. I don't know. Maybe you're in a stock market. You know, on the floor. Uh, maybe you have to be like that. Is it possible for... The, the simplicity is inner, finally. That's the real simplicity. It doesn't mean giving away all your possessions, having one outfit, never wearing mascara, no lipstick, burning your high heels uh you know just eating uh, one little uh, meal a day necessarily that doesn't that is not necessarily of any spiritual value at all finally the real renunciation is not in terms of giving up objects but in this in beginning to see and give up the incessant attachment and identification we have with everything as being me and mine beginning to let that go and that's what's happening in a simple, direct way. Uh, this flow of uh, these creatures that Ajahn Chah is talking about, they come and go. And little by little, you can really learn to enjoy the show, believe it or not. Now, if you've lost someone, no, I don't like this, someone has died. Uh, and someone who is very, very dear to you, and you feel grief. I don't mean that it's a show like, oh, here comes grief, ha ha ha. ha. Uh, what I mean is you really feel it intimately, but you're not. There's no separation. There's nothing outside of that. There's no preconception. Uh, it's just what it is. It's pure grief. When my own father died, uh, I thought I had. We were very close. And I thought I was done. Wonderful grieving, you know. I do this stuff. I practice it, and, uh, teach it, etc. Obviously, I know what to do. Uh, but it turned out I kept his ashes for about a month, and they were on my altar at home. And every day during the sitting, I would reflect on uh, that was what was left in this uh, little urn. Uh, it was sort of his last teaching to me, and that. Um, understanding that I too have that fate. It wasn't morbid. It was an attempt to get real and also I experienced uh, the love and also the loss Um, and then I, according to his wish, discarded the ashes in the Atlantic Ocean near Newburyport. Then I had arranged to have a three-day personal retreat. I thought it would be a good time to do that at a friend's cottage there. And I thought I had done all the big grieving. Untrue. Uh, finally, I found out what the real grieving was because uh, I sat after uh, putting the ashes in the ocean, and there was just pure grief and nothing else. Before, there were touches of self-pity. There were touches of preconception with names and me in it and my father in it. and. Sometimes, poor me, I won't have my daddy anymore. I'm sorry to speak. I don't mean to mock it, but there was separation. And even the way I approached it, I was hesitant. I was pulling back a little. During this time, whatever enabled me to do that, I don't know. Maybe I was edging up to it. There was no separation. It was just the pure energy of loss, pure grief, pure sorrow. It included crying, and sometimes it didn't. And it happened. It I went through it, and I understood that it was fully understanding what happened, not in my, in my head, and then it was over. That doesn't mean I don't love my father. It means that I've accepted his death, and from time to time, do I think of him and miss him? Yeah. But I, I'm not living in a dream world. Okay. Um Now, what Ajahn Chah ends up with is you will see many, i just re- shorten it a bit, you will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. Very important point here, which I can just hint at in the time remaining. We talked about the stillness, the peace that comes from a concentrated mind, if you recall, and how that was peace or stillness with delusion. That is, the peace is there and the, the stillness is there because you've temporarily separated yourself from the other elements of consciousness, your emotional life, your moods, your everything. And temporarily they're in abeyance. And so as you sink deeper and deeper, into consciousness is tremendous joy and peace, but you haven't. It, but it's based on uh, not really dealing with what your uh, that's unwelcome or whether you're intimidated by and so forth. I hope that's clear. But I was. Al- I also suggested there's the peace that comes from wisdom, from insight, and th- now we're getting at it, because this peace doesn't come from separating yourself from the content of your consciousness. Quite the contrary. It comes about through the full acceptance of what's there. The other is is the beauty of a concentrated mind, the happiness of it, not to be understated or undervalued. But what we're talking about now is the jewel that comes from, uh, the peace that comes from uh, uprooting and seeing through and into and taking care of so that you're uh, not afraid of what turns up, that you develop a certain inner strength and confidence that whatever turns up is workable. And it's workable because it's observable. You can fully meet it, see it, see its nature. Uh, and then the peace that comes from that, uh, that's, uh, it's sometimes said, sometimes the short word for wisdom or really enlightenment or awakening, or awakening, is stillness. The great stillness. Or there's one, uh, <clears throat> I can't fully quote it, but uh, it's from a, a Chinese Chan master. and I think it's Han Shi, but I'm not, sh- not sure. And that is, uh, the sound of the truth is silence and the chiming of the wind bells. It doesn't mean, it's not a silence that requires everything else to go away. It's the silence that the wind bells is short for just life. Everything else goes on. There can be thoughts and people and trucks and cars. This is a different kind of silence. It's not vulnerable, fragile, dependent on uh, unresolved stuff being swept under the rug for a while. And uh, I think this is what we're talking about. The, The simplicity is the simplicity of right now, taking care of right now, one of the joys that comes from that is that aspects of our life, objects that seem, that are mundane or ordinary, uh, that we never notice in life, become, can become beautiful. I just did a one-month self retreat at home, and much of the day, let's say the apartment was empty, and just sitting and looking, try it sometime, when it's quiet and you've sat for a while, or. It, you may not need it. I, for me, I guess I needed it. And I just looked at the same old couch and the same old flowers and uh, uh, just that chair and that just the ordinary apartment. And I was moved to tears. It was so beautiful. I think I understood why I've always loved still life in art because it must be, I'm, I don't know anything about it, but it must be that maybe the artist had something like that kind of stillness So they could fully appreciate how alive something is, just being there, not even moving, not even a person. Just inanimate objects, and it was just all so simple and beautiful. The color, the shape, nothing special. So that a lot of life becomes enjoyable without having to do all kinds of dramatic things and you know, uh, somersaults and uh, to get somewhere that will make you happy uh, because this planet, in a certain sense, is paradise already when we uh, start facing the hell that's in, in us. Keep it simple. I'm going to end with a, uh, it's a kind of Jewish teaching. It's not kind of, it's a Jewish teaching. <laughs> the, Jewish, the Jews are never kind of anything. <laughs> and I uh, got it from my grandmother. And she used to tell it with great relish, and I loved it. And to this day, it's one of my favorite teachings. There was a man named Buncher Schweig. And Buncher was a very uh, simple and good man. Uh, kind, took care of others, uh, was very generous, took care of his family and friends, and, uh, and then he died. And as all, so many of the, those stories go, then he went to heaven, and he was met in heaven uh, by the angels. And they were saying, Buncher... You've lived an exemplary life. You've just been wonderful. You've put yourself, you've always put others first. You've taken care of it. You've been uh, generous, compassionate, kind. Now you can have whatever you want. And he couldn't think of anything. So they were puzzled. He was struggling. So they tried and said, "Buncha, you can have anything you want. Please try. There must be something that you want. You can have it all here. We have everything here. And so, again, he couldn't come up with anything. Finally, they were exasperated, and they said, for God's sakes, buncha, come up with something. So he paused, and he said in a kind of shy voice, okay, can you see to it that I have a cup of coffee and a bagel every morning? Okay. If you don't see the wisdom in that, get back to your cushion. Yeah. Can we have a few minutes of silence?